What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, November 12th, 2021. I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going today? Maddie? it is going so well over here. It is the holiday season. I just can't wait. We are right in the middle of Halloween, Thanksgiving, and then all those wonderful December holidays. So great time of year. Looking forward to uh, the next couple of weeks. Oh, dude, I can't wait. We are also joined today by my good friend, Giselle Herrera. Giselle, welcome back to TPT. Hey, Matt. Hi, Nick. So excited to be back on here to talk with you both about news and the environment and climate. I'm so stoked and can't wait to dive in. Yeah, welcome aboard. And, uh, you know, with no further ado, let's do this thing. Today, here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we kick things off, if you haven't already, please leave us a review for the show on Apple Podcasts to help get us some more visibility. If it's something you've done, if it's something you haven't done, it's just going to help the show grow a lot, get us on some charts and get some more eyes on the show. Nick, did you see we actually have a new review this week? No way. You're serious? Yeah. First one in a a couple weeks. So thank you to this person who titled their account TPT Review. (laughs) And the review they wrote is... (laughs) The kind of stuff you want your kids listening to. Hashtag good for the planet, good for the soul. (laughs) That's incredible. A family-friendly podcast, yeah. (laughs) Good for the boys and girls of America. I love it. High praise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, put this show on when you're in the car with your kids. That's the best time. Get rid of the Wiggles uh, CD that you have. Just put on TPT. Seconded, (laughs) yeah. Seconded. (laughs) All right, so let's get into our... Our quick hits for the week. So our first quick hit comes from the Washington Post, and it is titled, This U.S. City Just Voted to Decarbonize Every Single Building by Tick Root. Last Wednesday, the city of Ithaca, New York, voted to electrify and decarbonize its buildings, which is the first time something like this has been declared in the United States. The city's director of sustainability, Luis Aguirre Torres, says the city is being very aggressive. And although there's a lot of work to get this done, he's really excited. Yeah, Ithaca has about 6,000 homes and buildings and roughly 30,000 residents. So decarbonization is going to have to account for all of those people and all of those homes and buildings. Buildings account for almost 40% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, so this plan should cut about 40% of Ithaca's carbon footprint. The city estimates that it will actually lower their carbon intensity by about 160,000 tons of CO2 per year, which is the equivalent of pulling 35,000 cars off the road. The initiative is going to be managed by a Brooklyn-based company known as Block Power that focuses on making old buildings more green. 35,000 cars. That is insane. 
Did they say anything? It's a about, lot. Yeah. Did they say anything about cost? Yeah, they did. So Ithaca raised about $100 million from the private sector to fund phase one of this project. And that's going to be about 1,600 buildings. And then if phase one goes well, the remainder of the buildings are going to be covered in phase two. And that should cost around $450 million. The city's annual budget is only $80 million. So they need to turn to the private sector for a little bit of help with the funding. So it's really cool. And I'm hoping that this kind of gives a blueprint for other municipalities that have similar ambitions, but aren't quite sure how to get there yet. And the city also plans on being carbon neutral by the end of this decade. Yeah, this is super, super cool. And like you said, hopefully it can be precedent setting and that a bunch of other, you know, smaller cities can can follow their uh, their footsteps. Yeah. I mean, if Ithaca can do it and they have, what do we say, 30,000 people, then what's stopping some of the smaller ones that have less buildings and less people to worry about. For sure. And even maybe college campuses, like I know Florida State, where I graduated from, their student pool is like 40,000 students. So who knows that maybe even whole campuses can can get on board with this as well. Yeah. Ithaca actually has a couple colleges up there. There's uh, college, Ithaca College, I believe is one of them. And then Cornell is in Ithaca. And like they say, uh, Ithaca is gorgeous. There's a lot of gorgeous up there. <laughs> All right, so let's move on to the next article here, and it is from the Associated Press, and it's out of Minnesota by Matthew Voigt, and it's titled, University of Minnesota Project Aims to Stop Bird Collisions. Yeah, so now this story caught my eye because we're currently in the middle of my fall migration for many bird species, and a major obstacle that they face during their migration south are window strikes. This new initiative called Stop the Thud at University of Minnesota is tracking bird collisions with campus buildings to address concerns about bird safety. Members of this initiative are trying to figure out where on campus window strikes are happening from data collected by the community and then using that data to come up with ways to try and prevent future collisions. Yeah, and why are birds flying into these windows in the first place? Like, can't they see like there's a massive building in front of them, you know? Yeah, so there's actually a couple of reasons why. So first off, there's a lot of these migrating birds that aren't used to urban environments typically. So they often have trouble navigating around these massive skyscrapers or like a big concrete building as opposed to a forest full of trees. The second is that the landscape's reflections on the building's glass, the birds perceive that to be real. So they're just flying right through thinking that everything's hunky-dory and then unfortunately they strike the glass. And the third reason is that birds are trying to reach habitats visible through the other side of that glass because of those reflectors. Surfaces. So again, they keep just flying right through them. And because of all of those reasons, it's really important to address uh, these bird collisions because several hundred million birds are killed each year in the U.S. due to window strikes, and many of these birds are of conservation concern. So birds hitting windows and and other buildings is always something I find interesting because, I mean, as you two and as listeners of the podcast know, I'm very big into renewable energy, and one of the biggest complaints that people have about wind energy is, oh, it's killing birds, but way more birds fly into buildings and cars each year than ever get impacted by windmills. And then, you know, if you factor in what fossil fuel is doing to the environment of those birds, even the the very limited number that do get hit by birds, it's like 
inconsequential compared to what fossil fuels are doing. So yeah, I mean this this topic I always find very very interesting. Yeah, it is. That's a really good point because one of the big things people do bring up right with with renewable wind energy right are those bird fatalities and you're right that i mean just going off of that stat that i mentioned before several hundred millions several hundred million birds are killed each year versus i think a fraction of that in comparison to yeah to wind uh to um windmills so yeah and i picked this article because maybe listeners notice these window strikes happening more often in the fall and in the spring uh, because of fall and spring migration. And honestly, there's some really quick and simple ways that you can work on to protect these birds at home or at work. Really quick, easy, and at times not super expensive. So at home, you can cut back vegetation near large windows. You can angle windows to reduce reflection, add mosquito netting. Uh, even these, like if you're really crafty, you love a good DIY project, you can cut out some bird decals, put those on your windows or invest in some UV light reflecting glass. And that you can do at home. But if you work in a high rise or live in a high rise, turning off your lights at night for nighttime migrating birds helps a lot too. and. These solutions are not only eco-friendly, but could also be energy efficient, which we love. So time for a little speculation. Do you think that like churches and holy architecture has less bird strikes because the the divine spirits that be are protecting the birds? Or do you think like <laughs> they just see stained glass and they know not to fly into that? I think a little bit of both, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of both. Isn't it Catholic St. Thomas Aquinas of like animals? He's the one, he's the guy to go. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, that is my, correct. My Catholic uh, family would be so proud of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is screaming at me. Matt, you didn't know that. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I'd be interesting to think that like the mosaic might like cause like patterns in the glass to stop them from flying in. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Speculation yeah. time. <laughs> All I know is Giselle Herrera paid attention in CCD. (laughs) That is the only thing I know. My grandma would be so proud, honestly. I'm telling you. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next one here. So Sam D. Smith of Car Scoops writes, Toyota named third most obstructive company towards climate change after ExxonMobil and Chevron. So this article is based on a report from Influence Map, which looked at corporations and climate change lobbying tactics. And this is the sort of stuff that's hard to keep up with, but it's also really important to know. So Ed Collins, a director at Influence Map, was quoted in The Guardian saying, the corporate playbook for holding back climate policy has come a long way from science denialism, but it is every bit as damaging. What we are seeing is not limited to efforts to undermine regulations directly. It also involves prolific and highly sophisticated narrative capture techniques leading governments down incredibly dangerous paths. Toyota's lobbyists have been trying to push back against the Biden administration's plans to accelerate the electric vehicle transition, and Toyota's cars also rank near the bottom tier of economy car rankings for gas mileage. Wow. Yeah, and Toyota was also the largest corporate donor to uh, members of Congress who identified the science for climate change. Yeah, honestly, and it's wild to see that all of these different political narratives that end up going in circles 
and also lead to all of these important climate action initiatives to be stalled. It's it's pretty insane to see that happen quite so often. Um, but on the other hand, you know, what's interesting is I was looking at some commercials like on Hulu or um, that car companies like Volvo are aiming for a good chunk of their cars to be either hybrid or fully electric. And I looked on their website and it said, and they said that Volvo is aiming to have half of their cars that they sell be fully electric while the other half are hybrid by 2025, which is, that's a big promise. And they're doing a ton of like advertising about that. I'm sure you guys have seen that too. Um, so two ends of the spectrum right there. Yeah, that's pretty ambitious too, because I know that BMW and uh, Volkswagen were one of the first, they're, they're joint together. I forget what the parent company is, but they were two of the first car companies to come out and say that by 2030 and 2035, they're gonna be moving to fully electric. I don't know where they stand on that on the timeline or how close we are to actually achieving that. But the fact that Volvo wants to get, you know, half of their fleet to be electric and the other half hybrid in what, almost three years at this point, like it's almost 2022. That's super ambitious. So that's cool. Yeah. And like you said at the beginning, Matt, like it's hard to keep up with this kind of stuff. Like there's a lot of information out there, but it's important to know what companies you're giving your money to and the role we play as consumers. And it kind of goes back to the thing we, we talked about two weeks ago with, with banks and deforestation. And even the, the article that you sent me on the environmental scorecards for banks, that was like super interesting. Yeah, it, it's wild because, you know, we talk about this fairly often, but greenwashing is real and it happens all the time. And this is one of those things where, you know, if Toyota's out there promoting their new hybrid vehicle or whatever, that's what the the public who isn't super up on these topics is going to see. They're not going to see the fact that behind ExxonMobil and Chevron, ExxonMobil, of course, being my mortal enemy, it's like the number three donator to politicians that are like promoting climate misinformation. So there's a direct correlation between, you know, who's lining your pockets and what stuff you're voting for. So every single time somebody purchases a Toyota car, a portion of that money is going to go towards somebody who's going to be voting against climate bills. So it's just, it's just stuff we have to be aware of. And, you know, unfortunately it's not just limited to Toyota here. I remember BMW and, and Volkswagen, who I just talked about, they were number like 18 on the list. So they, they want to get there, but with the, the lobbyists that they're funding, it kind of makes you just think they're only doing that because that's the way the market's going anyway. And it has nothing to do with what their corporate ambitions actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to COP26. So Robin McKee writes, so what has COP26 achieved so far in The Guardian? Yeah, this is a weird one to cover because as you are listening on hopefully Friday, November 12th, or you know whenever you're catching up with this episode, COP26 is going to be wrapping up. Um, the conference ends November 12th. So today we're going to cover everything that happened from the start to Sunday, November 7th. Next week, we're going to talk about what happened with the last five days of the conference and the conference as a whole. So hopefully some good news is coming your way. I know today as we're recording, there's a draft of a, um, a resolution that's out. I haven't really delved into it because the draft isn't going to be the final product anyway. And like I said, that's all coming your way next week. So updates time. India has had the strongest national pledge so far, which is something we touched on a little bit last week. 
And India plans to have half of its electricity from renewables by 2030 and to hit net zero by 2070. Experts think this only applies to CO2 and that India will be net zero for other emissions later, but this is still significant for a country that to date didn't really have much of a renewable or or net zero goal at all. China plans to have 25% of their energy be from clean sources by 2030 and be net zero by 2060. The United States and the European Union are both aiming for net zero by 2050. The issue with these goals is that like, it's really easy to say, yeah, we're going to get there in 29 years or 39 years or 49 years in, in India's case. But it's a lot harder to put these policies in place today that's actually going to get us in a position where we can get to net zero by that deadline. Yeah, I that's what I always think about when a lot of these government officials, countries as a whole, stand up on that podium and say... We have until this time to make big change, and it's all very grand, like pomp and circumstance. But what needs to happen in the near future to get us there? I think Mm -hmm. there needs to be a lot more conversations like that happening, where it's like actual solutions, whether it's updating infrastructure, investing in technology. We need like actionable steps that can be taken by organizations, companies, you know, countries as a whole, because we're kind of Debbie Downer here, but we're, we're running out of time. Like there's, there's only so much that, how much time we have left. Yeah. And it just kind of reminds me of, you know, how, how many times have all of us screwed over ourselves in the future where you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Okay. Perfect example. The three of us all attended college. You have a test next Friday it's 10 days away and you're like, yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. And then all of a sudden Thursday night gets here and you're like, well, I need to study a lot yeah, because I didn't yeah. put in those steps ahead of time to make things easier. And this is, this is the same thing, except this test matters a lot more than my college algebra test. Yeah. It's, we don't need to like, we don't need to chug Red Bull right now. We don't need to like pull an all nighter at the library. We need to like make solutions. We need to collaborate to get this into gear because yeah, there we we can't just put like a time limit on it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to some of the pledges. Forest pledges were one of the big things that was hit on so far. A deforestation deal was reached last Tuesday as a hundred world leaders agreed to reverse deforestation by 2030. Brazil signed on the pledge, which is huge because of the importance of the Amazon rainforest to the world. And the country's signing make up 85% of the world's forests. Take this with a grain of salt, though. There was a 2014 international deforestation agreement that actually didn't achieve any meaningful progress. This pledge, on the other hand, is supported with some serious money from both the public and private sectors, about $19 billion in total. So maybe I'm being optimistic or maybe I'm being naive or little of column A, little of column B. But I think the monetary backing for this pledge is going to be the key difference maker this time around. Another pledge was reached by over 90 nations to date, and that would reduce methane by 30% from current levels by 2030. We've talked about this a couple times, but always important to remind. Methane is more potent than CO2 because it just hangs out in the atmosphere longer. So this is another big deal. The global methane assessment from the United Nations estimates that a 45% cut is needed by 2030 to stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius. 
So look, I mean, we just heard the numbers. 30% is less than 45%. This isn't enough to get us to that 1.5 degrees Celsius benchmark that we're looking for. But this is a really solid step in the right direction that, you know, hopefully in five years, COP31 in 2026, we could say, hey, this methane reduction has been going really well so far. Let's ramp it up because if we bump this up from 30% to 45% over the next four years, we can still stay under 1.5 degrees. And then finally, 46 countries have been working to end burning coal. Um, Unfortunately, as of this article, Australia, India, China, and the United States were not part of the agreement. But the sooner we wean off coal, or at least have the largest consumers of coal start weaning off, the better things are going to be for keeping global temperature under 2 degrees, under 1.7, under 1.5 eventually. And remember, every single fraction of a percent matters a lot here. The issue with coal is that in general, developing nations want to phase it out, but they need money and technological help to do that. Yeah, and that kind of ties back to what we were saying before, that we need these action steps to be taken and where do we invest our money to get below that two degrees Celsius beneath that 1.5 degrees Celsius change because especially for those developing countries especially for areas that rely on coal so much we we gotta keep an eye out for each other and help each other out when it comes to these types of like technological advances. Yeah. Equity is really everything with these talks, right? Developed nations, the industrialized nations, we've had our day in the sun. Like we industrialized and made a lot of our economies awesome on the backbone of fossil fuels. So it's kind of up to us now to say, Hey, that thing that we did that we don't want you to do, it's our turn to help you out. So you have another Avenue. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. For sure. And that's the beauty of these types of like congregations of the like all of these countries coming together, thinking about the betterment of the earth and how we can all we're all in this together to quote high school musical. <laughs> um, but yeah, very much so. I mean, we and we can't be the country that blames other countries because we are one of the largest, the United States is one of the largest polluters, yep. um, but we can't be the one to point the finger saying like, oh, but they still burn coal. And I mean, we do too. So it's it's not a time for pointing figures, but rather finding solutions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, speaking of pointing fingers, let's point fingers at some of these world leaders. The talks have been criticized so far for being a global leader greenwashing festival, which, to be honest, I kind of agree with. Like, my biggest issue has been representation, where, you know, 503 delegates with links to fossil fuels have been at the conference, according to Global Witness. That's bigger than every individual country has there. Brazil has the largest team of delegates for any country with 479, and the fossil fuel industry has 503. That's a major issue. And, you know, like there's something to be said. Does the fossil fuel industry deserve to have a seat at the table? You can argue no, but realistically, yes, because they are still a major part of energy throughout the world. So we need to figure out how can we wean off this? How can we use their resources and their infrastructure to turn some places into renewable energy hotspots? 
So do I think that they need a seat at the table? Yes. Do I think they need more than every other country? Absolutely the f*** not. Yeah, not not even close. They need to take a step back, take a back seat in a far, far away area and, you know, listen in, give their two cents by those numbers are insane, honestly. Yeah. And and to quote Tom Cruise's character. Oh, my God. I was uh, literally going to do the same quote, Matt. I swear. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, what's what's the movie? Tropic Uh, Thunder. Tropic Thunder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Les Goodman, I believe, is his name. Take two steps back and literally f- your own face. <laughs> That's one of That's, my favorite quotes. That one goes out to oil. <laughs> yeah, that goes out to all the oil execs that are at top 26 right now. <laughs> all right, let's get into something more positive. Um, I have been extremely, extremely impressed by the young leaders who are taking charge. And I wanted to give a shout out to a few of them real quick. Greta Thunberg, Elizabeth Withudi, Clover Hogan, Vanessa Nakate, India Logan Riley, Brianna Froyan. All of you are amazing, amazing women who are doing big things in Glasgow right now and around the world. And I hope world leaders are taking notice because the rest of us absolutely are. They've been leading protests and hosting panels inside and outside of COP26 to try to keep 1.5 alive is the quote they're running with. And that means keep up the pressure on leaders to not settle for their current pledges so we can keep warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Yeah. And I, my girlfriend actually showed me this thing. It's like, uh, it's this group of like 12 or 15 individuals and they are doing a legitimate hunger strike. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, no, I haven't. In order to protest. Yeah. In order to protest, um, the greenwashing and the, uh, the climate change, um, neglect, that these that these big companies are are doing. That's that's like uh, taking it a step further from all of these people from like Fridays for Future, which like mm-hmm. they're doing amazing work every Friday, protesting at the UN building on the east side here, and that's taking it a whole step further. Like that's that's wild and really kind of insane to think about that like. Right, like youth today are taking it to those extremes just to like make change or at, or at least like have some publicity ab- around climate action. Like it's inspiring, but also like, whoa, you know? Yeah, and it's important to point out that like the youth of the world is who's going to feel the impacts of this. For sure. We've talked about them. We're going to continue to talk about them. Giselle, I hope you're part of, I love team David Attenborough here, but Nick and I love David Attenborough. He's an older, he's an older guy. He's like, like in he's his late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still yeah, trucking. He's not going to be around to feel a lot of these impacts in 20 years, unfortunately. Um, but people like us and people younger than us like Greta are. Mm-hmm. So no wonder we're the people who care so much. And unfortunately the people that we are relying on they're not 25 years old, 26, 27, whatever. They're like in their 60s and 70s. Like the people who we need to take it seriously, if they don't, it's not going to bother them. And that sucks. Yeah. And I always wonder too, though, like, what about your kids? Like, do you not care about your kids either, you know, or their kids? I just, I can't understand that mindset to just be so focused on, on just yourself. Yeah. And like the fact that, 
on the flip side of that, some people in our generation are are making the decision to not even have kids because of the climate crisis is another like absolutely like I'm considering that, you know, and that's that's a really I can't even imagine like two generations back in my family ever, ever like anyone thinking that that would be something to even consider. Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 such an nuanced dynamic with so many different generations, so many different backgrounds and voices. And Matt, to your point of all of these remarkable women um, that showed up in Glasgow. um, Yeah, so many backgrounds, so many different ages represented, all coming from these far corners of the of the earth that are severely being impacted by climate change and another youth activist who is a woman of color her name is selena leem she's part of some of the most innovative decision-making processes to happen uh in the climate crisis world specifically centered around making space for youth voices so selena she's from the marshall islands which is this atoll nation in the pacific that is facing some really drastic existential threats from climate change and this group from the marshall islands helped initiate the Gesh pledge which urges governments to enable youth engagement in climate related decision making from the local level to national levels. So this is exactly what we're talking about, about having the youth, having their voices be heard, being taken seriously, because they are the generation that is going to be, you know, kind of putting the pieces together from the generations before us. And young people like Selena are vocal about supporting her government's 100% renewable energy pledge to stop blackouts and to quote, free up government resources to help the people achieve priorities like health and education. Yeah, the, the youth is really stepping up and it's, for lack of a better word, extremely inspiring. So we're going to leave with this. The International Energy Agency's Faith Burrell said that achieving all current net zero pledges and the global methane pledge would limit global warming to 1.8 degrees Celsius. Selwyn Hart, the special advisor to the UN Secretary General on Climate Action, said, based on the nationally determined contributions that have been submitted, the world is on a 2.7 degree pathway, a catastrophic pathway. So regardless of what pathway we are currently on, let's just assume we're on that 2.7 degree path and fight like hell at COP26 and beyond to get past the 1.5 degree path because 1.5 is still the goal and is still possible. Yeah, 100%. And we've said this countless times in the show, but it's just going to have compounding impacts, you know? So if we can tackle it more so now, we're making it so much easier for ourselves later down the road when, you know, we need to seriously reach 1.5 of warming. 100%. All right. So let's get on to the last one of the week. And it is from Mary Claire Jelinek of the Associated Press and ABC News. And it is titled Roads, Transit, Internet. What's in the infrastructure bill? So we're going to link the article so you can check it out if you're curious um, about the bill as a whole. But as usual, we are just going to cover the environmental portion of the bill here. 
Last weekend, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a $1 trillion bipartisan bill to boost our nation's infrastructure, including roads, bridges, internet, and public work systems. It's projected to add about 2 million jobs per year for the next decade. So this is big, big news. And let's talk about the environment. Bad news first, the bill does include fossil fuel subsidies. And now let's get on to some good stuff. The bill will spend about $7.5 billion on electric vehicle charging stations, which is going to make EVs way more accessible for a lot more people. The bill also provides $5 billion for electric buses and hybrids. That way we can start to phase out diesel school buses. $65 billion is going to go towards modernizing the electric grid, which is great for expanding renewables into the existing grid. $55 billion is going towards improving the safety of the nation's water and wastewater systems, which is also awesome from a public health standpoint. And $47 billion is designated for climate resilience, so preparing for fires, floods, storms, droughts. That's all in the bill. Yeah, this is definitely a step in the right direction when it comes to the United States transitioning towards more renewable energy, as Matt like lined it out in terms of the, the dollars and cents. But hopefully these changes will make it easier for people that are financially stable and able to adopt more sustainable options like hybrid or fully electric cars or installing solar panels on their homes. It's really important to try and have all voices in the conversation, those who are financially able to make these changes versus those who might not be able to at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And I'm wondering, like, because right now when you go to the mall, you know, you see like maybe one or two like electric charging ports for like Teslas and electric vehicles and stuff. I'm wondering if eventually we'll just have full parking lots full of these like charging stations or, or... I'm thinking like the way that we charge our iPhones now with like, it's just, you put it down on the platter or whatever and it just charges. What if it's just an electrified field or like parking <laughs> lot? And once you drive your car on it, it's just automatically, I don't know. I'm just spitballing, but Hey, just, just goes right up through the tires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine smart house, but everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I think you're definitely going to see more charging stations in areas that already have them. But I think another thing is going to be, highways and rural areas in America are going to get those charging stations that way, you know, right now in the middle of Kentucky, where it doesn't really make any sense to get an electric vehicle in 10 years, it's going to be very doable. Or all electric uh, buses, bus systems, or more Mm -hmm. eco-friendly, like train transit, um, MTA, like there's there's so many different possibilities. It'd be interest. I'm interested to see like where specifically they start like putting that those billions of dollars towards. Yeah, and um, the Protect Our Winters newsletter kind of sums up how I feel about the infrastructure bill. So here's an excerpt from that newsletter. While this 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure and jobs deal does not contain all of the climate action that we've been asking for, there's tons of good stuff in there, like 150 billion for climate priorities such as an electric vehicle charging network an updated electric grid that can be powered by renewables, and clean energy jobs. We're not going to lie. The infrastructure bill itself won't reduce emissions enough to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius that we're aiming for. But it's a huge first step in our ascent to the mountaintop of significantly cutting carbon emissions. This infrastructure bill is not a climate bill. 
But the Build Back Better plan, if that passes soon, will have a lot more climate provisions that can give us a much better outlook on the future than what we have right now. So keep up the pressure by calling your representatives. Make your voices heard. We have all of the power, despite sometimes not feeling that way. Get in touch with the people who are elected to represent you. Because after all, they are elected to represent you. Yeah, love it, Matt. Great sentiment. And I believe it's time for a break. Let's do it. All right, when we come back, a fun conversation about carbon emissions. Giselle, do you remember the last time you sneezed? Um, honestly, it's been a minute. <laughs> I think I'm like hyper aware because of COVID, but maybe like a couple days ago. <laughs> do you remember, like, did you sneeze into a tissue, uh, your sleeve, maybe a napkin? I did the vampire cough, yeah, straight into the, into the elbow. Yeah, so now that you're uh, working more closely with the TPT team, we're going to have to hook you up with a Vala Alta Everyday Handkerchief. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Go get them, guys. Valaalta.co. There's no M. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And today we're going to be diving further into carbon emissions, specifically the emissions of the top 1%. Yeah, uh, trigger warning. This is going to be resulting in me seizing the means of production from the 1% yet again. A study from <laughs> Oxfam and based on research from the Stockholm Environment Institute for European Environmental Policy found that the carbon footprints of the richest 1% of people in the world are 30 times higher than what's needed to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The world's richest 10%, on the other hand, emits about nine times more CO2 than what will keep us under 1.5 degrees. So to be in the world's richest 1%, your net worth needs to be a little over $11 million. And to be in the top 10%, on the other hand, your net worth needs to only be about $109,000. The majority of our listeners are based in the United States, so it's hard to imagine this, but you have to remember that the middle class in the United States has a lot more money than some people elsewhere in the world. Um, luckily, thanks to student loans, I won't be sniffing the top 10% for a while, so I can speak from my high horse during this segment. <laughs> <laughs> Someone in the top 1% would have to reduce their carbon emissions on a personal level by 97% to meet 1.5 degrees. Someone in the bottom half of the world's population, on the other hand, would still be well below 1.5 degrees. 
The report as a whole highlights how closely tied inequality and the climate crisis actually are. And something I found super interesting from this report is that global carbon inequity is set for a geographic change. An increasing share of the world's 1% will be linked to middle-income countries moving forward instead of who we think of with those traditional industrialized rich nations. So, Nick, Giselle, open conversation here. Why do you think we're seeing this geographic shift in the top 1%? I do think it has a little bit to do with, I mean, it boils down to, you know, consumerism and I think globalization and how a lot of places all over the world are starting to focus on certain aspects of like consumption that aren't super necessary. Yeah, I do think it's about our world is becoming more and more focused on the internet. And I think what we see on the internet is kind of shaping how we consume, which ties all back into a lot of different things like what clothes we buy, the food that we eat, where we travel to, that all kind of groups together into this idea of geographic shifts and and how these different countries are starting to kind of act and behave in these ways. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to understand how uh, someone in the top 1% could need to reduce their emissions by 97%. Is that accounting for like the businesses that they own and run or like what is that accounting for? No, this is all all on a personal level. So, it's you know, the lifestyle that <laughs> that these people are living is uh Spoiler alert, very carbon intensive. That's insane that they would need to reduce it by 97%. But that's the, it's like we put so much emphasis on like celebrity and like going to concerts and like, yeah, Yeah. and status and like showing off. It's like, is that necessary? No. Like, do we need to live beyond our means? No. So, like, I wonder what 97% of like a massive celebrity would look like, like if they were to just like how they could transition their lives into like, I guess, a more livable way. Yeah, your answer was so much more profound than mine's about to be. But I think that we're seeing this shift geographically because the new rich people are trying to play catch up with the people who have been rich and the the parallel I want to draw is we've all been to a bar that we get there a little bit late and our friends are already drinking for an hour or two and you try to catch up with like one or five too many beers. (laughs) And this is the same thing where like rich people from middle income countries are now getting emissions drunk, trying to catch up with those who have been flying their private jets and, you know, doing fun things all around the world. Like they're trying to show off that, Hey, I'm here now and I'm a big deal too. Yeah, it's all about the mystique, you know, of like, ooh, where yeah. am I? Where, where is John Cena in the world right now? Like, like who cares? <laughs> but yeah, you can't even see him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's frustrating when you have like these billionaires who are just literally throwing money into 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 thin air, and you know, polluting. I can't even remember the stat, Matt. You would know it better than I would, but how many how much emissions they are putting out when they go up into these 20 second joy rides that they have oh we will get into it we will get into it big time in a couple minutes but yeah man uh, a single 10 minute space flight can burn hundreds of tons of carbon and that's for what just to have a nice 
Reuben sandwich and say, hey, look, that that's your continent down there that you can see. Just to have Leo DiCaprio steal your wife. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Bezo- Bezos is in shambles right now. Um, the report also cites billionaires' houses, cars, private jets, and yachts as the main source of emissions. And once you factor in space tourism, this number is really only going to get worse. And here's another interesting statistic. So billionaires' yachts were the single biggest contributor of emissions at 7,000 tons of CO2 per year each. All of these outlets of access by the mega wealthy are, honest, are as you can tell, pretty foreign to me. Um, but it's hard to deny how wasteful and damaging they are to the planet and to other people on this planet. So... I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it put this way, but why spend all of this time, money, and resources kind of linking it back to like space travel and living beyond your means when we need to protect the planet that we live on right now, currently, not in space, we're here. Like, I, it's, it just is mind blowing to me. So I have a hot take. Um, I'm just gonna come out and say it. I'm anti-yacht. I think they're stupid. Like you don't need a boat that big, especially when you see the giant mega yachts and the way that you get out onto that boat is you take a smaller yacht out there. Do you need two helipads on a yacht? Like, do you need one? Do, I think you need zero, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm out. I'm out on yachts. I was never really in on yachts, but I'm officially out. Also, it's a really stupid word. Like it looks dumb. Imagine learning English. That's not your first language. And you see Y A C H T. And then your English teacher is like, yes, that's pronounced yacht. (laughs) Why do we not just spell it? Y O T. Yeah. The only thing, the only thing I am not, uh, canceling is yacht rock because it's got, there's some great stuff like sailing by Christopher cross. That's a great song. But yeah, I'm 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 with you, Matt. I'm completely canceling yacht owners altogether. I'm I'm gonna cancel yacht rock too because if we cancel that, we can bring back the preferred music out on on ships, which is sea shanties. <laughs> so I'm I'm a sea shanty guy. Let's bring them back. Um, <laughs> For me, it's uh, I'm on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> with T Pain, The Lonely Island. Or, or Jack Sparrow, The Lonely Island, and Michael Bolton. <laughs> Another one. See. Yeah. I keep cranking right. them out. So to, to kind of circle back to some more important stuff, we talked about space tourism a little bit, and that's another term where I just get so frustrated because you hear space tourism and it's just annoying that this is what people are spending their money on right now. And like do something productive with your fortune. Like Giselle mentioned, we have stuff on earth that we need to fix. Like put more money towards that instead of, Hey, you want to see what the horn of Africa looks like from space? well, let's go up for 10 minutes and burn a hundred tons of coal. Like, (laughs) dude, it's just, it's annoying. On figure seven of the report, we see that U.S. consumption levels are not compatible with the goal of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius in any class. Also in most other countries, only the poorest 50% are 1.5 degrees compliant. India is the only major emitter where the middle 40% are also 1.5 degree Celsius compliant. Yeah. And another related report from the conversation found that billionaires have carbon footprints that are thousands of times higher than average Americans. And you have to remember that average Americans have carbon footprints of about 15 tons per year. 
which is roughly three times higher than the average global citizen. Yeah, we're going to post one of the charts from this report on our socials because it just kind of shows how high billionaire emissions are and also how high the emissions of yachts are. Like, It's interesting to see how some billionaires have relatively low carbon footprints compared to others. I know we talked about this before. We get annoyed with people like Bezos and Elon Musk because of space travel, uh, mostly because space travel is wasteful. But even with that, someone like Musk's carbon footprint is lower than just the emissions from Larry Page's yacht. The single biggest polluter is oil and gas tycoon Roman Abramovich, who also owns Chelsea FC, which sucks because that's my favorite English Premier League team. I didn't know about that. And for reference, his yacht is 533 feet long. He's personally responsible for about 33,800 metric tons of CO2 per year. So really, really stellar stuff there. The report also calls Bill Gates a modest polluter for billionaires with a carbon footprint of 7,500 metric tons per year, most of which comes from flying. Again, the average American emits around 15 tons of CO2 per year, and the average person on Earth emits five tons. Wow. Bill Gates is a modest polluter <laughs> who emits yeah, 7,500 metric tons. That's insane. Oh my God. What are we then? Are we like, honestly, like <laughs> yeah, little specks of probably, sand? Probably like 12. Yeah, we need like a marble uh, comparison. I want to see like 15 marbles and then I want to see 7,500 marbles. That's the only way my brain can equate the two. Where's the rice? Where's <laughs> the rice when we need it? <laughs> yeah, the rice. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was looking for, the rice. Yeah, and the report ends by saying that asking the average American to reduce their carbon emissions can be ineffective because it would take the average person 550 years to equal the carbon footprint of one billionaire. It's so annoying. <laughs> like, it, it's not to say that we should all give up and stop caring, but honestly, this whole thing comes down to super rich people and corporations need to be held more accountable. Like, that's it. For sure. And how can we do that as consumers ourselves? You know, we, granted, we are little marbles, little uh, grains of rice in the whole scheme of things, but thinking realistically about what is living beyond our means and how that looks different for everyone and how, and to have these conversations with others. Social media comes to mind because it's such a powerful tool on either sides of that coin of having this conversation of like living beyond our means. So unfortunately, on one side, uh, we have social media using to promote practices of overconsumption, like getting trendsetting clothes through fast fashion really quick through Instagram. Or on the other side, we could use it for good to have open dialogue with like these wealthy mega celebrities about how their lifestyles are impacting the planet, whether hopefully they know it or not. So Yeah, I think it comes down to unfollowing influencers and then making like six personal accounts to follow David Attenborough six times because the man just <laughs> deserves it. It's called yeah. balance, yeah. Speaking of people who deserve the follow, friend of the program, Antonio Guterres, I know you're out there listening while you're busy at COP26. But I love you. He said uh, personally to us behind closed doors um, that over the past 25 years, the top 10% have contributed more than half of the world's total carbon emissions. The IEEP report that we mentioned goes on to estimate that the world's richest 1% will account for 16% of total emissions in the world by 2030. The number we talked about for the middle class breaks down to about 40% of the world's population being on pace for emissions cut 
of 9% from 2015 to 2030. And they called that the Paris effect because the middle class is actually kind of taking into consideration the Paris Agreement and saying, hey, I'm going to reduce, I'm going to reuse, and what I can't control, I'm going to recycle. Um, so they're there's less consumption. And of what's consumed, we're consuming smarter. So that's some good news, at least. And the IEEP report ends with some conclusions that we wanted to bring up before letting everybody go for the week. Global carbon inequality leaves 1.5 degrees not being achievable at our current consumption rates and trajectories unless the world's richest 1% reduce their emissions substantially and the world's richest 10% reduce theirs as well. Governments need a timetable at COP26 to strengthen the national plans to keep in line with 1.5 degrees while also accounting for equity. Governments need to raise taxes on carbon or outright ban highly carbon-intensive luxury items. They mention SUVs, mega yachts, private jets, and space tourism as things that governments really need to look into more. The emissions of the world's richest people linked to their investments is likely even greater than their direct consumption. So a taxation of wealth is required to reduce inequality and also reduce the carbon emissions of the rich. And the last conclusion Shifting the behavior of the polluter elite is key to fighting the climate and inequality crises. It's great to see that there's a fairly new conversation happening when it comes to global polluters and the mega wealthy. Like Matt, you said before, it's still important that we, as non-mega wealthy individuals, can still make changes in our daily lives to lower our emission footprints. But we still need to hold those that are major polluters accountable and to try and encourage positive action out of them. So this will be key to fighting both the climate crisis and the inequality crisis, like you said. Yeah, and I think it's great that we've like been able to equate a number to see this is what you're doing to the atmosphere. This is what you're doing for the world. Um, you're contributing in a super negative way and uh, you should be held accountable for it. Yeah, and you know, let's hope moving forward that they are. And like we've mentioned, keep doing what you're doing. Like, don't read this report or listen to this show and think what I do doesn't matter. So I'm going to throw out my metal straws. I'm going to throw out my reusable water bottle and start diving back into single use plastics. Like keep doing what you're doing because it helps. You're making a difference, especially on a local level, because the water bottle that you would throw out in the trash that might end up in your local water supply by using a reusable bottle, that's not going to happen. So don't feel like your impact isn't there. It's just that from a grand scheme of things, from a global impact, we really need to hone in people like Larry Page and people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. and all those people who have yachts that are worth more than any of us combined. Closing thoughts, I hate yachts now. <laughs> <laughs> Down with yachts. Down with yeah. yachts. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I are going to talk about COP26 in full. Uh, the last day of the conference is the day that this episode was released, so hopefully we have some good news. Then we're going to air my interview with Keith Hutchings of the Comfortable Home Project and talk about passive solar homes. We'd really appreciate if you could share the show with a friend. We love getting new listeners, and engaging with us on social media is the best way to get some new eyes on the show. So be a friend and help your friends over here at TPT. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too. And if you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we will do our best. Like we said last week, we have some fun guests lined up in the next couple months, and we're going to keep that rolling into next year. 
If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you're able to. We would also love if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. We were joined today by guest co-host Giselle Herrera, who also helped write today's episode. Giselle, where can our listeners keep up with you? Yeah, feel free to check out my fairly quiet Twitter account at GC Herrera, G-I-S-I-H-E-R-R-E-R-A, where I'm trying to be more active, or on LinkedIn. I love connecting with other like-minded environmental <laughs> activists, so... LinkedIn's my go-to, honestly. Giselle makes up for my lack of LinkedIn. I recently turned off all notifications because I, I hate it, but you can you can be our LinkedIn person here. <laughs> I love it. I'll be that channel for this channel, yeah. for this podcast. You can keep up with all of us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Bye.